and seasonal salutations. Welcome to episode 33. As always, thank you for hitting that play or download button to have a listen to my ramblings about all things movie-related past, present, and future. In each episode, we look at a movie, or a lot of times, a pair of movies, if there is a commonality between them. Some of them hailed as among the best of the best. Some that may have stalled out of the box office but have loyal followings. Some that may have been big when they were first released, but over the years became pretty much forgotten. And some that may have flown under the radar when they first came out and deserve a revisit. And if you happen to be unfamiliar with any movie that this show takes a closer look at, say, for example, today's feature film, which is celebrating its 75th anniversary this year, just remember what actress Lauren Bacall once said, it's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. I'm your movie-loving host, Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. You know what? Let's just cut right to the chase. Everyone has at least heard of It's a Wonderful Life. Okay, maybe you haven't actually watched it, or maybe you only know it from the Sopranos episode, where Tony Soprano climbs into bed, turns on the TV, and sees George Bailey happily hollering Merry Christmas to Bedford Falls. Oh, Jesus. Enough already. Or maybe you're more familiar with, thanks to 1990s Home Alone, the version dubbed in French courtesy of Kevin McAllister's family's viewing in Paris once they realized that not only did they leave him behind, but they also forgot to close the garage. Kevin! I forgot to close the garage. No, attendez un peu. Il est inutile d'attendre 24 heures et je n'ai aucun conseil à demander. C'est tout décidé, je sais ce que j'ai à dire. C'est non, non, en aucun cas. But French, English, or otherwise, It's a Wonderful Life has been a holiday season staple for decades, largely because for years it lapsed into the public domain. Which means that network TV didn't have to pay any royalties, so they could just air it whenever they darn well felt like it. And I'm not gonna lie, I adore this movie. Yeah, it's got its flaws, its cornball moments, maybe I wouldn't go for all of its symbolism, but, but I can see past that because of its well-intentioned message. But let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Best to begin, as usual, with the spoiler-free plot setup, and then you'll get the spoiler warning before we pivot George Bailey's 1919 Dodge automobile towards the Fun Facts Freeway. Rounding out this retrospective are the poll results, the trivia segment, and shoutouts to listeners and those who commented on this week's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter poll. Alright, so let's say that you have yet to see It's a Wonderful Life, or that you haven't seen it in a while. What is it about? I mean, besides a ringing bell on a Christmas tree and a guy happily running down the street in a snowstorm waving his arms like a thrashing machine, screaming out Merry Christmas at inanimate objects like movie theaters, emporiums, and the Savings and Loan Building. The first thing we have to do is look at the opening shots. It's nighttime, Christmas Eve, and a sign in the middle of a snowfall reads, You are now in Bedford Falls. Behind that town sign, sort of off to the side in the background, is a banner that proclaims, Welcome Home, Harry Bailey. The shot dissolves to bring on one of the most archetypal images of small-town post-war USA you ever did enjoy. It's that same snowfall-drenched Christmas Eve, a nighttime view of Bedford Falls. It has city sidewalks, busy sidewalks, dressed in holiday style. In the air, there's a feeling of Christmas. Shoppers rush home with their treasures, three, maybe four of them milling about with the lights all hung up and illuminated as the soft melody of O Come All Ye Faithful begins playing on the soundtrack. There's another dissolve to the storefront of a pharmacy called Gawa Drugs, and that's when there's a voiceover by Mr. Gawa saying, I owe everything to George Bailey. Help him, dear father. Then we dissolve to Martini's, the local watering hole. It's got a wreath on the door, it's got a lit-up tree to the left of the building, snow's still falling. And a second voiceover, this one provided by Mr. Martini himself, prays, Joseph, Jesus, and Mary, help my friend Mr. Bailey. 
we then get another dissolve that brings us to the exterior of a church and the voice of a woman, Ma Bailey, begs, Help my son George tonight. Then the film's editor branches out into greener pastures, and instead of yet another dissolve, they give us a cut too. And the two in question is the exterior of a home. This shot's voiceover is a character named Bert who laments, He never thinks about himself, that's why he's in trouble. A second cut brings on a tracking shot back in the center of town. The camera travels past Bedford Falls' garage and towing, and a voiceover by a character named Ernie says, George is a good guy. Give him a break, God. Then Mary, played by Donna Reed, offers this up. I love him, dear Lord. Watch over him tonight. And her words accompany an exterior high-angle shot of a home with lights on it and the windows as the snow keeps on falling. With that same image, the voice of a little girl named Janie is weeping, Please, God, something's the matter with Daddy. As the voice of little Zuzu whimpers, Please bring Daddy back. Please bring Daddy home. Mary's voice returns with, Watch over him tonight. As the camera zooms out away from the house and dissolves into a shot of outer space. As Zuzu repeats, Please bring Daddy home. So now we're in deep space, a couple of planets whiz past, and we settle on the sight of something floating around in the firmament that foreshadows the beginnings of the cosmic baby from 2001 A Space Odyssey. There's a star next to it. The cosmic baby and the star begin a conversation. You'll know which one's talking, because as they speak, they blink on and off like a couple of celestial light-bright toys. They have names, according to the subtitles. They're Joseph and Franklin. Franklin begins, Hello, Joseph. Trouble? Joseph responds, Looks like we'll have to send someone down. A lot of people asking for help for a man named George Bailey. Franklin says, George Bailey? Yes, tonight's his crucial night. You're right. We'll have to send someone down immediately. Whose turn is it? Joseph says, well, That's why I came to see you, sir. It's that clockmaker's turn again. Franklin gives a little affectionate chuckle and says, Oh, Clarence. Hasn't got his wings yet, has he? Joseph says, We've passed him up right along because, you know, sir, he's got the IQ of a rabbit. Franklin says yes, but he's got the faith of a child. Simple. Joseph, send for Clarence. Alright, I need to stop here because I have a legit question. Riddle me this one. The trope of a religious authority figure, affectionately defending a simpleton from someone's impatient, judgmental verbal daggers and saying, come on, they're childlike, they're just a kid. Didn't we see this with the nuns in The Sound of Music when Sister Margarita, or whatever her name was, gets fed up with Maria, but the Mother Superior tells her to get bent? Type very firmly feel Maria's not an asset to the Abbey How do you find a word that means Maria? A clown. But back to the schmaltz. An endearingly tiny little dot flies in from the left. You sent for me, sir? Franklin says, yes, Clarence. A man down on Earth needs our help. Clarence says, splendid. Is he sick? Nice, huh? Franklin says, no, worse, he's discouraged. At exactly 10.45 p.m. Earth time, that man will be thinking seriously of throwing away God's greatest gift. And Clarence says, oh dear, dear, his life. Then I've only an hour to dress. What are they wearing now? And Franklin says, you'll spend that hour getting acquainted with George Bailey. And Clarence responds, sir, if I should accomplish this mission, I mean, uh, might I perhaps win my wings? Franklin doesn't give a direct answer to that question. Instead, he says, what's that book you've got there? And Clarence says, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. You hear a smile in Franklin's voice. Clarence, you do a good job with George Bailey, and you'll get your wings. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. And you'll get your wings. And Joseph replies, poor George, sit down. If you are going to help a man, you'll want to know something about him, don't you? Keep your eyes open. See the town? 
And at this point, the screen goes dot gray, and everything is from Clarence's point of view. It's all blurry. We don't see a darn thing. And Clarence says, I don't see a thing. Oh, I forgot. You haven't got your wings yet. Now look, I'll help you out. Begin to see something? The screen begins to focus gradually at that line of dialogue, and Clarence says, why, yes, this is amazing. And Joseph says, if you ever get your wings, you'll see all by yourself. And Clarence says, oh, wonderful. All right, so let's try to unpack all of that. You got some pretty heady dialogue here, but the way that it's all packaged and delivered might not necessarily be everybody's cup of cappuccino. I mean, it's corny, it's sentimental, and it's cutesy. You know, some might call it contrived, some might call it inspired. You decide. Either way, the camera is now fully focused on a group of boys in the wintertime. They got their hats and their gloves on and their coats and they're yelling and they're cheering. And the one in the middle is George Bailey as a kid holding a, it's like a bullhorn of some sort as he sits down on a shovel. He uses the shovel as a sled to fly down this snow-covered hill. Kids, don't try this at home. And as he flies down, you hear Clarence saying, hey, who's that? And Joseph says, that's your problem, George Bailey. That's him when he was 12, back in 1919. Something happens here you'll have to remember later on. And after a couple of friends do the same thing, they get on their shovels and they slide down the hill. Down goes his kid brother Harry Bailey, who flies right into the icy waters. George jumps in after him, tells his friends to make a chain gang, and he saves his brother's life. And sure enough, Joseph provides that confirmation in his narration. He says George saved his brother's life that day. But he caught a bad cold, which infected his left ear. Cost him his hearing in that ear. It was weeks before he was able to go back to his after-school job at Old Man Gawa's drugstore. We then get a sideswipe from left to right, and you see George and his friends all walking arm in arm in arm down the street. I guess they really did mean a chain gang. Just as Joseph refers to the gentleman riding past them on a horse and buggy as Henry F. Potter, the richest and meanest man in the county. And the thing of it is, is that he looks just as old here as he does later on in the movie. He's like Frau and Austin Powers. There's just no youth whatsoever. You know, when they were born, fire probably wasn't even invented. And the next scene brings us George in the drugstore with two girls his age, Violet and Mary, and each of them is competing with the other passive-aggressively for George's attention. Now, Violet's approach is to be all about the eyelash batting as she buys shoelaces and primly asks to be helped down from the stool, which she does not do. The girls stick their tongues out at each other as Violet leaves. Mary decides to take a more practical approach. She orders a chocolate milkshake. He shows her National Geographic magazine, and he tells her about how he's going to go out there, and he's going to go exploring someday. Unlike Violet before her, Mary decides to be a bit more direct, and she whispers into his bad ear, George Bailey, I'll love you till the day I die. And of course, he cannot hear that. He just says to her, I'm going exploring, and I'm going to have a couple of harems and maybe three or four wives. Hang on to your dreams there, Ace. Meanwhile, his boss, Mr. Gawa, has tears in his eyes in the office, and a lot of alcohol in his bloodstream as he snaps at George, you're late, and stop whistling. He turns back into his office, and George is surprised and shocked at this outburst, and then he sees a telegram that was left on the cash register, addressed to Gawa, informing him that his son Robert just died of influenza. And you have to remember, it's 1919, which is when, of course, the flu epidemic at the time was on a rampage. George goes into the back office where Gawa's putting together a prescription for a customer. Mr. Gawa drops the pills and George voluntarily picks them up and notices they're coming from a container labeled poison. And he can add two and two together and make four, so he's pretty apprehensive when Gawa tells him to bring them to the person's house. George doesn't know what to do. Does he defy orders and tell a clearly drunk man who's his boss that he screwed up royal? Or does he just follow orders and do as he's told? 
As he's walking through the main area of the pharmacy, he sees an ad on the wall that says, Ask Dad, he knows. So off he goes to see if there's any truth in advertising. He runs outside and into an office building with the sign Bailey Brothers Building and Loan Association. His father, Peter Bailey, is in his office with the one and only Mr. Potter, who's demanding the $5,000 that Peter owes him. Peter's asking for 30 days more. George tries to interrupt because, of course, he has the question about the poison in his hand. Potter, meanwhile, is telling Peter to foreclose the mortgages that these people can't pay. Peter's defending these people, saying, hey, they're out of work, their family's with children, I'm not going to turn them out in the street. Potter says, they're not my children. Peter says, you have no family, no children, you can't even begin to spend all the money you have. And Potter retorts with, I suppose I should give it to miserable failures like you and that idiot brother of yours. And that's when little George, the sleeping giant, decides to get involved. And he yells, he's not a failure, you can't say that about my father, you're the biggest man in town, Pop, bigger than him. And he gives Potter a little shove, oof, <laughs> don't let him say that about you, Pop, as Pop chucks his adolescent ass out of the office. So George is all upset, he looks down and he thinks, oh, yeah, that's right, the poison crisis. He goes back to Mr. Gawa, who's on the phone with the customer, who's saying, hey, hey, where are my pills? And before we go any further with the setup of the story, I do want to say, all kidding aside, that this film... For all of the praise and labels of Christmas kingship it's gotten over the generations, it really is, if you think about it, a pretty dark movie. The subject matter is pretty heavy, and there are some brief moments that might get first-time modern-day viewers feeling a little jittery. I've seen this movie a fair number of times, and I still get fidgety and agitated by what comes next. Gawa, he smacks the hell out of George four times, and you see Mary still sitting at the stool out in the main area with her milkshake, wincing at the sound of each slap. So the force of the impact, the sound's traveling clearly into the main area of the pharmacy. George is hollering and whimpering and crying and pleading with Mr. Gawa, saying, You're hitting my sore ear. He's telling him, You put poison in the capsules. I saw the telegram. I know about your son. I know you're upset. I know you feel bad. And once Gawa realizes what he's done, he moves towards George again. And George cowers back in fear, whimpering, No, don't hurt my sore ear again. Gawa realizes what he's done and says, oh, no, 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 and he gets down on his knees and hugs George. George just keeps repeating that he knows that he feels bad. He won't tell anyone, and the scene fades out, and the two of them sobbing in each other's arms. I mean, this is, this is a, damn. <laughs> this is just, this is. There's a leap forward in time, and Jimmy Stewart enters the picture, literally, as George Bailey as a young man. He's looking at some luggage in a store. He's excitedly talking to the guy behind the counter. I'm going to go out there and see the world, he says. The conversation between Clarence and Joseph, don't forget, we have a couple of celestial beings here. They're observing all of these goings-on. Joseph confirms that's George Bailey all grown up. And Clarence says, oh, you mean the kid that got his ear slapped back there by the druggist? Did he ever tell anybody about the poison and the pills? Not a soul. So Jimmy Stewart as George Bailey as a young adult, all full of piss and vinegar, as he regales the guy behind the counter with his itinerary. I'm going to Italy, I'm going to Baghdad. He's going to work on a cattle boat and travel to far-off places. As it turns out, old Mr. Gower already had picked out a suitcase for George and had it engraved with his name. George's name, not Gower's. And George happily comments on how swell that is. You cannot get much more Jimmy Stewart than using the word swell. So the mood is considerably lightened, the merry is back in those jingle bells, and we catch up with Violet, who's evolved from being a 12-year-old flirt to a full-grown tease. She walks seductively as she greets George outside on the sidewalk. He compliments her on her dress... And she just playfully says, oh, this old thing, I only put it on when I don't care how I look, as she flips her hair back with her hand, walks down the sidewalk, crosses the street, and literally stops traffic. At the Bailey home, George's younger brother Harry is getting ready for his graduation. It's dinner time, there's a lot of laughter and fooling around, 
Harry's all caught up in the excitement and the euphoria of his commencement. He goes over to Annie the maid and says, I'm in love with you. There's a moon out tonight. She's backing away from him, saying to him, don't come near me. I'll hit you with this broom. She goes through the swinging door into the kitchen. He follows her and slaps her on the rear end as she lets out a yelp behind the closed door. No, no rear end slapping. No good. Just, uh, no. But George and his father sit down to eat, and his father gets serious as he says that he wishes that Harry could go to college with George. George says, we've talked about this. The plan is Harry will work my job at the building and loan for four years, and then he'll get his turn at college. When George is out of college, he wants to build things, design buildings, plan modern cities. His father at first says that he hopes he'll come back to the building and loan, but George says, I want to do something big, something important. If I don't get out of this town, I'll bust. Peter looks at him and he agrees. You're right, this town is no place for any man unless he's willing to crawl to Potter. Go get yourself an education and get out of here. No fooling, but that is love. Later on that night, it's Harry's graduation. It's at the high school, class of 1928. George accompanies him. He's saying hi to a lot of his old teachers. Old reliable Violet is there. We also meet a guy named Sam Wainwright, whose signature line, hee-haw, factors heavily into the movie's teary finale. Mary's older brother asks George to do him a favor and dance with Mary. Their eyes meet across a crowded room. She's talking to the guy who plays Alfalfa and the Little Rascals, but she leaves him and dances with George to a big band version of Buffalo Girls. Then there's the big Charleston contest. Then Alfalfa opens up the pool. Then there's a piece of bad editing as they fall backwards, twice. They fall into the water, everybody else jumps in, including the old headmaster or principal or whatever he is. And there you have the prerequisite homage to the Roaring Twenties. George and Mary, they begin courting, and if you haven't seen this flick yet, you might be saying to yourself, where the hell is Christmas? It actually isn't Christmas time until a little later on. And for the Christmas scenes really to have any kind of an impact, or at least the impact that they really were hoping to have, you need the character build up and you need the life story. That was one of my things when I first saw this movie as a kid. I remember watching it bored out of my skull saying, where is Christmas? But I was young and impatient and looking for the next movie that would splash red and green all over the place. And with that said... We'll stop there with the spoiler-free plot setup. I think I've said more than enough. And now it is time for the 10 fun facts. So here is your friendly spoiler warning as we look behind the scenes of It's a Wonderful Life at a treasure trove of tidbits about this cinema legend on its 75th anniversary. Number 10. In the movie, George Bailey wants to leave behind Bedford Falls and go on out there and take a big bite out of life. He wants to see the world, build things. Did you know that in real life, Jimmy Stewart could have ended up being part of things getting built as well? After graduating from high school, he enrolled at Princeton, where he earned his bachelor's degree in architecture. That's right, Jimmy Stewart had the academic credentials to be an architect. And Stewart's own real-life father hoped that he would stay behind and run the family hardware store. Sound familiar? When presented with the opportunity to either accept a scholarship to enroll in a master's program for architecture or to join an acting troupe and give performing a go, we all know which way he went. Number 9. The movie is based on a 4,100-word short story written by Philip Van Dorn Stern in 1943, three years before the film was made. The title of the story is The Greatest Gift, which pretty much every publisher in town turned down. Van Dornstern decided, okay, well, I'm going to send a copy of it at least as a Christmas card, a small booklet to 200 friends that December. In 1945, he finally followed through with registering his story with the copyright office, and that's how it came to the attention of movie producer David Hempstead. 
The long-defunct RKO radio pictures snatched up the movie rights for a cool $10,000. Number 8. This was the first film for both director Frank Capra and actor James Stewart after both served in World War II. Capra turned to Stewart and said, I've got an idea for a movie that I feel you'd be great in. Capra formed an independent film production company. He partnered with RKO. RKO would have distribution rights. Looking back years later, Stewart said, quote, Frank really saved my career. I don't know whether I would have made it after the war if it hadn't been for Frank. It wasn't just a case of picking up where he'd left off because it's not that kind of business. It was over four and a half years that I'd been completely away from anything that had to do with the movies. End quote. Number seven. The film did not turn a noticeable profit for Liberty Films when it was first released. According to a writer by the name of Lawrence Quirk, who wrote a book called James Stewart Behind the Scenes of It's a Wonderful Life, highly recommended, quote, It just seemed too apple pie, too all-American, too simplistic to a world that had suffered through six years of human nature at its most terrible. The disillusioned public simply couldn't summon any empathy with the message Capra and Stewart were trying to convey. End quote. Number six. A few episodes back, we looked at the 1946 drama The Best Years of Our Lives, directed by William Wyler, who was a good friend of Frank Capra. Each of their movies was the first time back for both, from the war, and they would send each other encouraging telegrams during production to keep each other's morale up. Wyler apparently sent one to Capra that simply said of their return to the movie sets, Last one in is a rotten egg. Best Years of Our Lives ended up pummeling It's a Wonderful Life at the box office, claiming the Best Picture Oscar as well as Best Director and Best Leading Actor. All categories that Wonderful Life was also nominated in. And Best Years of Our Lives became, at the time, the second-highest-grossing film of all time, trailing only Gone with the Wind. It's a Wonderful Life certainly could not say the same. Number five. Remember the scene where George and Mary are about to go on their honeymoon, but instead end up giving all of their money to the townspeople when they need to withdraw from their accounts? And George asks everyone how much they can get by on because he only has so much to distribute among all of them? One woman by the name of Ms. Davis comes up to him and says, Can I have 1750? He leans over and he gives her a big kiss in the cheek. That was an ad lib. The script called for her to say $17, but Capra took her aside before shooting the scene. He told her to think of something to make the moment funnier. So Stewart's reaction to her ad lib of 17 and some change is genuine surprise, and that's what ended up in the final print. She was played by actress Ellen Corby, who went on to cement a place in American TV history for herself in the role of Grandma Walton in the 70s series The Waltons. Number four. Are you familiar with the name Adriana Casalotti by any chance? She's an opera singer who appears in the film in the background in Martini's bar in the scene where George is crying and begging for God to show him the way. She provided the voice of Snow White in Disney's animated version of that fairy tale, and you can also hear her extremely briefly in an uncredited vocal appearance in The Wizard of Oz. It's when the Tin Man sings, If I Only Had a Hat, and you can hear her saying, Wherefore art thou, Romeo? I hear a beat. How sweet. Number three. Before this movie, filmmakers tended to use bleached cornflakes and maybe cotton for fake snow, and God help us, sometimes, even asbestos. But for this one, Capra wanted something that looked more like the real thing. He wanted footprints. He wanted tire tracks. So for the four-acre set of Bedford Falls, they concocted a mixture of fomite, that's the stuff you find in fire extinguishers, soap and sugar and water. This stuff was shot out of at high pressure, and using a silent fan, they gently wafted it all over the set to make it look like a gentle snowfall. Not a bad visual for a movie shot in the sweltering heat of a Los Angeles summer. Look carefully and you can see Stuart sweating like a pig in some shots. 
You know, someone who breaks a sweat when it's 60 degrees out? I can sympathize. Number two. In central New York State, there's a town called Seneca Falls, S-E-N-E-C-A, which was the inspiration for the movie's fictional town, Bedford Falls. Seneca Falls is about 45 miles west of Syracuse. Both the real-life town and the fictional town have steel truss bridges, similar architecture, and a main road named Genesee Street. The real-life Seneca Falls proudly embraces its role in pop culture history by having annual events every December. And it's a wonderful life weekend featuring parades, a 5K road race, appearances by some of the surviving cast members, including Carolyn Grimes, who played Zuzu, the little girl who uttered the immortal line, something about bells and wings. The town even has an It's a Wonderful Life museum. Hey, why not? And according to Ms. Grimes, quote, I never watched it until 1980. I was 40 years old before I ever saw it in its entirety. I saw bits and pieces over the years on commercials and so forth. But I never sat down and watched it. I had a whole new life. I was in middle America, worked in the medical industry. I married a guy, and we had two kids. He got killed while deer hunting. Then I married another guy, and he had three kids. Then two more came along, so before I knew it, I was raising seven kids. I didn't have time to watch TV. I'd be done around 10 p.m., and I'd watch Johnny Carson. When I saw the movie, I loved it. It just took over my life. End quote. And by the way, both Carolyn Grimes and Robert J. Anderson, who plays George Bailey as a kid... They both appeared the following year in another Christmas classic from Hollywood's so-called Golden Age, The Bishop's Wife, starring Cary Grant. And like It's a Wonderful Life, The Bishop's Wife does not have them sharing any scenes together either. And number one. You might want to sit down for this one. Back in 2013, Carolyn Grimes went on record as saying that she was close to signing on for a sequel. Oh yes, she would play Zuzu again, only Zuzu would be deceased and an angel. Her nephew on Earth, George Bailey's unlikable Scrooge-like grandson, also named George, by the way, would be her pet project. Her job would be to try to help him see the error of his ways by showing him how life would be better if he had never been born. Yeah, put down the Q-tip, you did hear me correctly. Paramount Pictures, which now owns the rights to the original film, they heard about this germinating idea that had no legal clearance. They clipped little Zuzu's wings and the idea was mercifully shelved. And now it's time for the final segment of today's show, the poll results and the trivia. The poll that was put out there across my social media leading up to today's show asked you, what was your preference? It's a Wonderful Life in its original black and white presentation? A colorization of the movie? Option C was that it's all the same to you, either way. And option D was you haven't seen the film to begin with, at least not yet. Apparently I struck a raw nerve with this one, because this is the most amount of feedback on a poll from this podcast to date, and I ain't complaining. Over on Twitter, option A enjoyed a clean sweep. 100% of the votes went to black and white. On Instagram, SP Film Viewers says A all the way, while Shawnee also agreed that it's A all the way. Davey A from the podcast I'd Give That 10 Minutes acknowledges that he has the movie but has yet to watch it for the first time. Davey, I want a full report once you do finally see it. Julius, my badass sister-in-law in all of the best ways possible, emphatically added not one, not two, not three, but four exclamation points after the letter A. So I guess she's made her feelings on the matter pretty clear. And I saved this Instagram comment for last. Autumn Ludwig, who also goes for A, added, the way Jimmy Stewart wanted it. And thank you for including that. Because I have here a quote from Stewart himself from that same book by Lawrence Quirk. Quote, Photographers of that time knocked themselves out to highlight faces, to carefully place light and shade. It's a disgrace, end quote. Meaning, of course, colorization. 
And over in the social media world of the Book of Faces, I have shoutouts to bring, pum. Michael W. says you can't improve the original as he casts his vote for A. Mike and I co-hosted the show Real Life, R-E-E-L, for our town's local cable station. Next up at bat is Kim. Hey, sister. No, really, my sister. She offers this up. A, hands down, though I appreciate the work it took to colorize it. Cool to see it in color, but nothing beats the classic. Following on Kim's heels is Lauren G. Hey, my senior prom date from high school. Lauren, you said, I'm against colorizing movies, but I accidentally chose the colorized version and decided to go with it the other night. It was cool to see the pretty dresses so vividly, but I think I'd only watch black and white going forward. It's how I fell in love with the movie and how it should be seen. Lauren, I got you. My friend and colleague Mary G. brings this one to the table, black and white all the way. While Julie C., a former student from when I was young and sprite-like in my mid-twenties, also goes for A. Maureen T., Stacey M., and Judith A. all go for the A, while Aaron D. simply says, Don't mess with the original. Safe advice indeed. And Stacy, by the way, thank you for sharing the poll on your own Facebook. Very much appreciated. Bernard C. says, I enjoy both the original black and white version and the colorized version and have both on DVD. While Edward R. comments that he's seen both, enjoyed the black and white much better. Sarah S. agrees by also saying letter A, calling it the classic. And Mara W. says, I've never seen the colorized version. I like the BW. Mara, from the sounds of it, not too many people who commented here would say that you've missed much. And Mary C., how you doing, Mary? She put this out there. A, black and white matches the dark tone of the film. Excellent point. As I've already said, some elements of this film really are a lot darker than people not too familiar with the movie may think. At any rate, thank you all for contributing your thoughts on black and white versus color, especially when it comes to a widely loved cinema legend. As for the trivia segment, you ready? Here is this episode's question. Before It's a Wonderful Life in 1946, before America got involved in World War II, Jimmy Stewart did another movie that takes place at Christmas time called The Shop Around the Corner, which co-starred Margaret Sullivan. It's about a man and a woman who work alongside each other, they cannot stomach one another, the struggle is real. In their personal lives, they both have an anonymous pen pal they exchange romantic letters with and find themselves falling in love with. What happens when the information surfaces that they are unknowingly each other's pen pal? Shop Around the Corner is sometimes called Jimmy Stewart's other Christmas movie, but here's the question. It was remade in 1998 with a different title starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Name the movie. I'll give you a hint. The title of the movie does reflect internet access at the time. Send your answers in for a shout-out next episode and a personalized meme. And like I always say, it does not matter when you send in your guests. Whenever you're catching this episode, just go ahead and bring it on over. You can send your answers through Twitter at FilmBuff1974. The film group Silver Screen is on Facebook. Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram. Or you can email me at frankmendoza at yahoo.com. And of course, as always, if you have any follow-up questions or any comments, thoughts of your own that you want to share on It's a Wonderful Life, any of the cast or crew involved, memories of your own that you want to share about the movie, or maybe others like it, or heck, even shop around the corner. I'd love to hear from listeners. One final bit of business. Last episode's trivia question. Last time, Stu and Al from the Stu and Al pod guested for a retrospective on the films of the Coen brothers. And one thing that I mentioned at the beginning was the soon-to-be-released The Tragedy of Macbeth, directed by Joel Cohen and starring Denzel and Cohen's real-life wife, Frances McDormand. The question last time was, for what movie did McDormand, just this year, receive the Best Leading Actress Oscar? 
The correct answer is... Nomadland. And triumphing at trivia once again, reclaiming the title is Mary C. Thank you, Mary. Appreciate you playing along. Happy holidays. And happy holidays to anybody else who's listening as well. And if you happen to be listening to this after the holiday season, then have a happy holiday, whatever holiday is next. Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, Passover, Easter, Fourth of July, whatever it is. And if any of the listeners have anything that you'd like to contribute, any suggestions, any requests for future episodes, thoughts on any of the polls or any of the trivia questions, I'm all ears. And that just about does it for episode 33. Thank you for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And if you could take a second to give the show a rating on Apple or iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, good pods, please feel free to do so to help with the algorithms and to get more people to discover the show. And if you feel compelled to leave a quick review of Silver Screeners, I would be forever grateful for any honest feedback. Thank you again. I'll be seeing you in the next episode. Until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you with a brief audio clip from It's a Wonderful Life of a song that speaks to the hat. Buffalo girls, can't you come up tonight? Can't you come up tonight? Can't you come up tonight? Buffalo girls, can't you come up tonight? Hey.